Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Well, as we draw to a close our short series of Nature Nights here on RTE Radio 1, we thought it fitting to finish with some nighttime feeders, the waders. The autumn bird migration season is now well underway, with thousands upon thousands of our feathered friends streaming into the country to take advantage of Ireland's relatively mild winter climate. One of the most significant groups of these migratory birds are the waders, those long-legged, long-billed travellers which gather in large numbers on our beaches, estuaries and mudflats in search of food. Here at Mooney Goes Wild, we believe that Ireland's wonderful waders deserve more attention. So tonight, we bring you a special programme in the company of Eric Dempsey and Niall Hatch from Dublin's Sandy Man Strand, one of the most important wader habitats in the country. It promises to be a real treat for anyone who wants to know more about these remarkable creatures and why Ireland is so vital for their survival. Good evening, Derek. Hello, Derek. How are you? A glorious evening it is too, isn't it, Eric? Oh, do you know something? It's just one of those perfect nights. It's calm. It's almost sort of a mist coming down. And oh, you take a big deep and breath and you, you smell the lovely rotting seaweed <laughs> that makes this place so special for birds. Absolutely. One of those, those healthy smells my, my mother used to describe them as. But of course, that is the smell of decomposing seaweed. It's a perfectly natural smell. Sometimes people think it's rotting sewage or something. It's not. Uh, but that attracts in flies and all sorts of other little invertebrates. And that is food for these wonderful waders we're here to see. And that's the point. I mean, people, as you say, Noel, are sort of, you know, put off by this, the smell of seaweed uh, that's on a shore. But it is like a, you know, it's, it's a broth of insects, and especially in winter. You know, I, I remember during that big freeze over back in 2010, birds survived by going onto the seaweed because the seaweed was almost like these silage bales where they're warm inside, and as soon as they broke into it, it was full of insects. So that smell is a smell of a, a rich biodiversity. And people can probably hear there from the background noise that we're not in some pristine area untouched by humans. We're right beside this main train line here. That's a dart that just passed us there, the, the Dublin Suburban train. Uh, we're actually uh, right beside uh, the line, which was originally the first, the very first railway in all of Ireland. Mm. Uh, it was opened back in 1834. It went the 10 kilometre distance from Dunleary, which is just to the south of us, to Westland Row, as it was then, Pier Station now, uh, in Dublin city centre. And it was actually the first commuter railway in the whole world world oh my goodness. I didn't yeah. know that I, didn't I know actually that. didn't know yeah. that because I know that at one stage because I I'm now living near the East Coast Nature Reserve in Newcastle and I knew that the railway line stopped at Newcastle at some stage and then people were transported from Newcastle railway station into Wicklow and beyond I didn't know that fact that is the oldest commuter railway in the world. And I'd like to think that uh, since 1834 there have been daily commuters passing through here enjoying the spectacle of birds that come right beside the railway line. You have a, a, a wonderful view across much of Dublin Bay. I remember coming here as a child. Um, the scene hasn't changed much at all. There's the incinerator I see now that's on the skyline, but apart that's from right. that there's very little difference. I have photographs of me as a kid here and uh, you know you go out to the seaside and there was you know it's a photograph of me. I must have been only about two year old. But this beach is very flat, so when the tide goes out, by God does it go out. It goes way off out into the bay. You just have, you know, nothing, just just sand. And this photograph is me standing with my little bacon togs. And I'm just in the background, about two miles away, is the sea. I never got to dip in the sea that day. Now, it is on the south side, I will say that. You know, <laughs> like I'm a north sider, so the, the Bull Island is my, my place. But this is such an amazing place to have right in the heart of the city. And we're just thinking about that railway line. You know, all the way from Wicklow, people coming north into Dublin, they have the most amazing view all the way. Wicklow, you have the, the sea on your right-hand side as you travel north. And on the left, you have various conservation areas, the Murrah, you have East Coast Nature Reserve, you've Kilcool. It then goes off around Bray Head, all the seabirds there. Then the beautiful area of Dunleary, all that beautiful sea coastal area and then you come on to 
a biosphere habitat like Dublin Bay here. On the other side here at Buddhist Town, which is where we're standing, we also have Buddhist Town Marsh as an addition. It's a bird watcher and a nature lover's dream railway journey. Oh, it really is. And I wish that more people would stop staring at their phones and would look out the window when they're doing that journey because I think it's one of the best in Europe. And I'm not joking. I think it's it's magnificent. I remember seeing, you know, you see dolphins jumping in Kalini Bay and people not even looking out the window. And yet they pay a fortune to go on a dolphin watching yeah, cruise. It's incredible, isn't it? It really is. But we've hit jackpot here because it's dark. And you can see Pool Bag, the, you know, the flashing lights, and you can see it's lit all over, and then to the bay, and then into Dublin City. But we are here at the rising tide. Uh, the tide is on the way in. And this is the vital part. We've always spoken about how wading birds, their whole lives are based on the f- ebb and flow of the tide, not day and night. They're going to get a rest shortly. They're all going to go to roost. And we can hear birds like redshanks and godwits and uh, oyster catchers already beginning to go to the roosting sites here because they could feed during the night because they use the tips of their beaks to find the food but once the tide is coming in and it's coming in very rapidly i'm always amazed at how rapidly the tide comes in in dublin bay i've seen people caught on a little bit of sand and suddenly the water's all around them i saw one woman actually happened to be lifted off by the helicopter here one day because it really comes in rapidly. But as it comes in, all the waders will start going onto the slightly higher ground to roost here, and it's a magical place. Uh, yes, and the, the, the tide does catch people out here. You do have to be careful. There's an amazing tidal range. It goes out so, so far, comes in so rapidly. And if you happen to be on a little bit of, of land, a bit of sand that's maybe even three or four inches higher than the surrounding, you won't notice that you've been cut off and you're on a little exactly. island. Yeah. And the tide will come in faster than you can run. So it's, it's, it's you know, yeah. it really is it's formidable. <laughs> but that's the reason why this is so rich in bird life. And you mentioned Bull Island there. I think we have to kind of look at this side here, Sandy Mastrand, and Bull Island is yeah, linked because the birds move the between same them. Thing. Yeah. Absolutely, they're part of the exact same rich habitat that is Dublin Bay. And we're, we're very lucky to have something like this so close to our capital city. As the winter progresses, we're going to have thousands upon thousands of waders. We will have Brent geese here, all congregating in Dublin Bay. And it's, it's a very easy place to, to see all these birds. We also have thousands of gulls that come here in winter and it's an important roosting site for all the terns that are migrating off their breeding grounds roseate terns little terns arctic terns common terns sandwich terns some of these birds that we see in dublin bay in august and september have come over from wales before they start their journey so it is an important place. Actually, Eric, you mentioned the Rosia Tern there, or the Rosia Tern, however you want to pronounce it yourself. And I bought a small book of stamps in the GPO last week. And one of them is of a Rosia Tern, and it's one of the nicest stamps I've ever seen in all my life. It's so nice that I wouldn't dare lick the back of it. <laughs> I kept it, even though I had stuff to post, but I didn't post any letters with that stamp and I still have it. It's gorgeous. It's a, I haven't seen that design. I, I don't know who, who produced that. It's one. a stunning design. It's Killian Malarney. Oh, okay. It's a wonderful, so ah, yeah, a wonderful okay. artist, yes, um, world class. Yeah, yeah. And that's a bird, as you said, Eric, you can see them here on the strand staging yeah. before they leave. Many of the birds that have nested in Rockabill, for example, they'll stop off here. And as bird watchers in the Dublin area, Wicklow, that we can kind of take the rosy turns a bit for granted. Yes. But in global terms, that's a superstar bird. It's so hard to find. Absolutely. And like, you know, I guided many, many people over the years over here in holidays. And I've done some guiding in the last uh, couple of months. And Roseate Tern is is one of those birds that they dream of seeing. And like in Dublin, we have them, you know, we, we, you know, Rockabill, just, they're there in their thousands, you know. Yeah, well, don't forget to describe what they look like, Eric and Nile, because the listener who listens to this programme every week has no visual distraction. They have no pictures. So describe the Rosia Tern if you would. Like our other terns, the rosier tern has a basic body shape. It's, it's, it's a very pale bird, so it's mostly light grey, with the rosier tern even paler than the other terns. So it's, it's very, very pale, almost white. A black cap on top of the head in breeding plumage. The terns, you can tell them apart by the different coloured bills that they have. The rosier tern, at the start of the nesting season, it has an all-black bill. And then as the breeding season throughout the summer progresses, they get more and more red towards the base, but never more than about half red, half black, which is how you tell them apart from the common tern, which has an almost completely red beak with just a little black tip, the arctic tern, and a totally red beak. 
But more so than that, they're not really doing them justice because they're the most incredibly graceful looking birds. They have these big long tail streamers, forked tail like all our terns do, but they have the most amazingly long, spectacular tail streamers. And the name roseate comes from the rose pink colour that they have on their chest, which is particularly striking in that stamp you saw there, Derek. Uh, I think they're stunning, Eric. They are just one of my favourite of the seabirds. You know, I often look at roseate terns uh, and there's a very exotic bird called tropic birds that you see in the tropics and they have big long tail feathers. And I often think that roseate terns remind me of them because those long tail streamers almost sort of wave like ribbons behind the bird as it flies. They almost have this life of their own, the, the, the long tail streamers, which the other terns don't. They, they seem more compact. And that beautiful pink yeah. flush of a, a roseate tern, you're just, oh, you can't beat them. And there's a very important conservation story about the roseate tern here in Ireland Nile on Rockabilly. You might tell us that, but before you do, Eric, I want to ask you, is your mobile phone switched off? Yes, it is. Okay, I'm going to send you a message, and it is the image of the stamp. Because I do. have the little book yeah. of stamps, and I can send you the image, and modern technology, you can actually open it up and have a look at it. So now, will you tell that story? In the meantime, I'm going to send the image to Eric, and he can have a look and comment on it. I'll certainly do my best, because I, I love that bird, and I love the project. So the roseate tern, it's a bird that you actually find in other parts of the world in tropical regions. You find a few of them in the Caribbean, you find a few of them uh, through the Indian Ocean, places like that. They have a wide range, but they're very thin on the ground. And the Irish birds here that nest, they're kind of a bit of an outlier. They're, they're further north than you'd expect the bird to be. Uh, but the largest European colony um, is on Rockabill Island. It's 80% of the European breeding population of that bird there. And over the course of just over 30 years now, that bird has gone from being at the brink of extinction to being secure and, and populating other European colonies, uh, thanks, I must say, to, to Birdwatch Ireland through a project funded by the National Parks and Wildlife Service. And particular credit has to go to one man, that's Dr. Stephen Newton, mm. uh, Birdwatch Ireland Senior Seabird Conservation Officer, who has revolutionised the future for that species, the fortunes of that species in the whole world. It's it's really remarkable because it's not just that the, the population that's on Rockabill now is starting to feed the other colonies elsewhere, like uh, places like Coquit Island in England, uh, colonies in Brittany and in the Azores, uh, but also the techniques he's pioneered there have gone on to be used in places well, like... Well, describe them. Well, what the main thing is making sure that you have vegetation cover. In, on Rockabill, it's a plant called tree mallow that the birds will nest underneath, but also providing nest boxes and habituation in the nest boxes. Terns, it seems, do not like nest boxes, apart from roseate terns, which absolutely love them. But the other thing roseate terns need they need other tougher terns nesting alongside them. So they can't survive in a colony unless there's also, in, in this part of the world, common and or arctic terns nesting beside them because they're tougher and more aggressive and will fight off yeah, any kind of intruders. Nile, remember the listener, remember the listener. Yeah. So this isn't a nest box in a tree. These are ground nesting birds. Oh, the ground nesting so birds. So it's an upturned nest box to all intents and purposes. Describe it, please, It's much larger than a nest box that you find in a tree. It's the size of a washing up basin, let's say like that, made of marine grade plywood. So you get about 10 years life out of them. It's a hard, harsh condition out there on the island and on the ground and the front of panel of that box ha is half open so mm. um, so there's a place where the, where the birds can walk in um, usually put a bit of gravel inside it's a place for them to not they don't really build a nest but it's a place to stop the eggs from rolling out mm. that kind of thing uh, but it's particularly important when the, the chicks are sheltering when it's in, in bad weather and also protects them from predators like gulls and skuas and things that would come along but also it seems to have been very useful in the last couple of years as we've had the scourge of bird flu because the turns in the boxes they're less likely to come into contact with excrement from infected birds falling down so ah. actually it's helping their survival that's very interesting I didn't know that yeah. and how have the roseates done in Dublin Bay in, in, in the last year or two with bird flu it's still a little bit too early to say because yeah. what's had to happen because of the threat of bird flu, the ringing has had to stop because yes. uh, we can't disturb them, can't cause, and also you're putting people at risk. Yes. You catch yeah. it. And um, what we do know is that unfortunately, quite a lot of common terns on Rockabilt have died, uh, and they're easier to see dead because they're not in the boxes. Uh, with the roseate survival seems to be a bit better. We know at Ladies Island Lake down in Wexford, which is the second largest roseate tern colony in Europe, uh, it's uh, we've seen that there was large mortality among uh, the common terns and black-headed gulls. Over 1,300 birds found oh, dead. Wow. The roseate, I think it was about seven found it. Not great, but yeah. still it could have been a lot, lot yeah. worse. Yeah. Okay, yeah. but it's a success story Big nonetheless success story. Oh, because fantastic. these birds yeah. have come back. Now, Eric, I heard I, a little beep, so yes, I'm I assuming you got the picture. So, beautiful uh, picture tell our of, listener again about know, that wonderful stamp. It's a, it's a beautiful painting by Killian Malarney. You know, he is the, the artist who did the famous Collins Guide, and um, it is that, you can see the beautiful pink flush on the breast of the bird, the mostly black bill, just a little bit of um, pale red on the base mm -hmm. of bill. But the most important thing 
is look at those big long tail streamers that I was talking about. They, they are so long, they're the longest tail streamers of any of the terns, which really makes roseate so graceful. And the lovely rosy red oh, feet as well. Yes. Uh, and a lot and of that blue sky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, think yeah. it was Ireland? No, no. <laughs> but no. it's a terrific stamp. A so treat yourself, stamp, yes. boys and girls listening in. Get yourself a stamp. Anyway, you're there to talk about waders tonight. I'm distracting <laughs> just, you. I'm distracting no, it was you. interesting, Derek, because as, as uh, Noel was talking, uh, you know, about the roseate terns and things and the nest boxes, four little egrets just flew off <laughs> into Booterstown Marsh. Now, when I started bird watching, that would not have been a sight that you see little egrets going to roost in Dublin Bay. So it's a constantly changing biodiversity that we have. We have new birds coming in, like little egrets, cattle egrets are, are extending northwards as well. But like, I'm still amused to see little egrets in Booterstown Marsh, you know, you go by and there's little egrets and people don't bat an eyelid. 20, 30 years ago, that would have caused a sensation. And just for the benefit of those who will be travelling on the dart tomorrow morning and looking out into Booterstown Marsh, little egrets are the small white herons. They've become very, very common right across Ireland. I remember 1980, June 1980, I travelled to County Cork to see a little egret. And it was like, wow, there's a little egret in, in Ireland. This is mad. We have a small pond in our back garden in Wicklow. And I've had little egrets in there fishing for newts. Ooh. It's like mad. Absolutely insane. But in those 40 years since that first one, They've become so common that now you find them, like in Dublin Bay, you'll find 20 of them sometimes sitting, roosting at high tide in Booterstown Marsh. And that is a sight that I just never thought I'd imagine. So along with the incinerator, then that's the second change that I've yeah. seen since I was a kid. Big <laughs> in fact, I remember my very first little egret in my whole life was just about 30 metres over that way behind my shoulder there, over at Buddhistown Marsh. And I remember there was a twitch. The car park yep. was full of birders with yep. their, their telescopes and with their cameras. Uh, and now uh, you wouldn't really bat an eyelid. But, no. but other than that, they're really beautiful birds. They're bird. beautiful birds. <laughs> the long plumes on their head. And, and in summer plumage, they have these you know loose feathers around their, their chest and around their back called aigrets, which really nearly caused that species to, to become extinct because they were hunted back in the Victorian age for um, decorations for hats so mm. and that's of course how the RSPB became into existence yes. because the Victorian ladies started a campaign to protect the birds from you know the hat industry so strange times indeed yes so it's, it's a bird that conservationists owe a debt of gratitude to uh, it makes a, made a big difference it's amazing to think a whole group of species could actually be threatened with extinction because mm. of hat fashion. It's, it's really bizarre. Is it a wader though, Niall? No, technically not. No, it, it's, its lifestyle is very like that of many waders, but it, it belongs to the heron family and they're not related. Uh, I should, expo- I suppose, ex- explain at this point exactly what a wader is. Waders, strange as it may seem, they are related to the terns that we're speaking about earlier and to the gulls and strangely also to the, the puffins and the other auks. They're all part of the, of the same order, um, but the waders are very distinct. They live in a, a very different way. The vast majority of the waders they have long legs and long bills and there's a few exceptions to that but mostly that's that's the archetype really isn't it uh, and what they do is they run around and they can wade in shallow water um, and depending on how long their legs are they can go into deeper and deeper water some of them can even swim if they need to uh, and they also then use their the bills to probe down into into the, the, the substrate so here to be the mud flats one of the reasons why this is so good for waders is because this huge tidal range, there are so many invertebrates living underneath that sand. There must it's be like a, It's like a broth of yeah. food for, for these waders. And the, the, the longer your bill, the deeper you can probe. So all of these birds with ever so slightly different lengths of, uh, of bill, all these species are able to feed alongside each other without competing directly against each other for a, the same food source. So a cordial is going very deep a godwit is going slightly less deep and all the way up to Dunlans and then you have the plovers which have short little beaks and they're just going for the very top layer so that is why a mudflat like this is so rich in bird life because they're all feeding alongside each other but they're not competing directly with each other. And, and I think that that's also one of the reasons why you see so many different species side by side living apparently in harmony. One of the benefits they get from that is if you have all these different species together, more pairs of eyes looking out for danger. So when a peregrine or a merlin turns up, as often happens here on Sandy Mount Strand, these yeah. birds of prey, these falcons will come in to try to catch a wader. If, um, if let's say, a golden plover or an oyster catcher spots it, it'll give a call and the curlews will react to that. And yeah. the, the red shanks. Red shanks especially. Red yeah. shanks do my head in, actually, I have to admit. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to 
do some photography. Uh, you know, you, you approach anywhere near uh, a lovely group and the light is perfect and it's just absolutely lovely. And suddenly the red shanks, you know, it's like, oh my God, we're all going to die. We're all going to die here, a quick run. And, and everything gets up and then you're going, lads, just calm down. I'm just taking <laughs> photographs, you know, it's, take it easy. So the red shanks particularly are so, so alert. And that shrieking call just causes mayhem. Uh, across a mud flat because and, and oftentimes there's nothing oftentimes there's absolutely nothing like a, a crow flies and the red shanks get up and everything gets up but the safety in numbers as you say if you have all those eyes looking to the skies looking for danger it's far safer to feed in a, a, a 20,000 birds than by yourself because if a falcon's going to come through you know if you're by yourself you're, you're the one that'll get it if you're with 20,000 you've a 20,000 to one chance of being got so your odds are much higher if you're with a group and you will survive much better and oftentimes by the way you'll have birds that will find the uh, the best locations and they all sort of tend to, to move in in that direction and um, as you can see now the, the water is really coming in rapidly and uh, a lot of people who are interested in looking at this group the one piece of advice I will always say is check your tides because the birds will feed close to the tide because that's where the, the softest, the wettest mud. So you'll come to Sandy Mount or to Bull Island uh, on low tide and all you're looking at is little grey or brown blobs of shorebirds miles away. You come on a rising tide, all of the birds are forced close in to the shore because they're still trying to feed before it gets too deep. So position yourself about an hour or two before high tide. That is the optimum time to see the birds or just as the tide turns because the birds will come into the first piece of mud always check your tides before you come out looking for, for waders because if you come particularly in dublin bay at uh, low tide the birds will be a mile away you will not see anything and that's exactly why we're here at this time of day it's after dark the sun has set long ago uh, there's still a general buzz or hum of light yes. you have from the city so so we can we can see relatively well but that's because at this time of year the birds they, they don't really live on a, a cycle of daytime and nighttime it's a tidal cycle yes. it's all really controlled if you think about it by the gravitational pull of the moon which is incredible which is really. a bit mad when you think about <laughs> yeah. that yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but it makes them see the birds they want to they want to feed when they have the, the, the mud and the sand exposed and then at, at high tide when the feeding air is taken away from them some of them may go into Beerstown Marsh which takes longer to fill up and they get feeding there what a lot of them will do is they'll actually go over to places uh, like like the marsh or perhaps even like the piers over in Dunleary yes. very close by here and they will roost or sleep and even if it's the middle of the day they'll sleep at noon if the, if the tide is in and at the middle of the night they'll be out feeding so it's all about the tides rather than the, and the light it's because they don't use their eyes necessarily to find their yeah. food they're, they're using touch those delicate nerve endings at, their, at the end of their beaks are able to find the food without them looking at it. So there's one thing I will also say is that Dublin Bay is plagued. Now, I'm, I'm a dog owner. I have three... <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned yeah, this. <laughs> I have three beautiful dogs at home and they love going down to the beach, uh, you know, at Newcastle and they, they go into the sea and they go swimming. But you will often see wading birds in their thousands being chased by dogs with their owners either totally oblivious to the fact of the damage that's being done or not caring and I, I hope that it is the former rather than the latter and the amount of energy it takes for a bird that that panic flight uses up vast amounts of energy these birds are living on the edge all the time they're feeding there's dangers many of them have migrated here and you know, when they roost, they're, they're digesting their food, they're taking energy, they're conserving energy. When they fly, as a result of being chased, it's a panic, panic chase, it's not a natural flight. They use up far more of that precious energy that they have, and it is a detrimental thing to them. So I plead, because I'm a responsible dog owner, I hope, as is Hazel, my other half, and we are fully aware of these, these kinds of things, but, Please, 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 if you're bringing your dog to Sandy Mount Strand, try and get a quieter spot if you want to take, take your dog off a lead. But when you see it chasing a flock of waders or even terns or gulls, get it back in very quickly. These birds need to be able to rest in between feeds. 
I remember doing a, a bird count from this very spot where we're standing right now, overlooking the, the, the beach here, and I was counting my telescope all these waders, and all of a sudden the scourge of bird counters everywhere, the dog comes running yes. through it, my survey's ruined, I have to start again. So I was very frustrated, but I could also see that the birds were very distressed. Yeah. Now I always like to try and educate people where yep. possible, I think if you explain the situation, a lot of people are very reasonable and are, are grateful. So I spoke to, to the person who had let their dog off the lead and was merrily chasing these birds around on the beach, and they said to me, oh, sure, but, but, but the birds love it, they really enjoy it. I was like, oh no, 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 your dog loves it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you love seeing your dog do it. Those birds, they're fearing their lives. Yeah, they think they're yeah. about to die. This wolf, as far as they're yeah. concerned, is chasing them. And we know from studies that have been done, particularly in places like Finland, where a lot of our waders come from, these, these birds, they go to all over the northern hemisphere, from the Arctic regions to, to nest. The more disturbance they experience here in Ireland in, during the winter time, the less successful they are at nesting the following summer. Some fail to nest completely because they've depleted too many of their energy reserves. Their stress levels are too high and this has a permanent effect on them. Uh, so too much stress here in Dublin, that really can impact them. So I often feel like when we have a high tide coming in at night like this, it's actually better for the birds. Oh, there's far, far, far fewer dogs. There's, there's nobody walking on the beach here at all. There's no disturbance. The birds are just naturally going to roost. There's uh, no, no problems at all. And, and you see, People forget the journeys some of these waders undertake. Um, you know, we, we're all familiar with migrants, you know, swallows and cuckoos and warblers. But we have uh, an amazing cross-section of global species here. We have bar-tailed godwits and knot and things up from the, the, the Siberian areas. We have high Arctic species, birds that have bred like right up in the Arctic. We have birds that have bred in Greenland and Iceland and they're all congregating here and the journeys some of these birds are capable of making only last week i was reading there's a bird called a bartail godwit mm. and it's a bit like a curlew but with a straighter bill one you could see here one on the you could see, and this is one of the best places in dublin to see them um they breed right across the arctic circle so our birds are coming in from the lakes of siberia so they've these are sort of siberian species and there was radio tagging done on these species in Alaska and where they spend their winter is in places like New Zealand <laughs> and the, the thinking was that these birds would island top or go along you know from Alaska go along the west coast of uh, North America Central America South America and maybe island top over to New Zealand so they started putting these little radio tags which are little lightweight satellite dishes if you can imagine on their backs they weigh only a couple of grams so they, they, the birds aren't even aware of them and last week one broke the world record okay it was tagged flying just under 13,500 kilometers in 11 days without stopping it's insane you think about that <laughs> that's like running a marathon 24 hours a day for 11 days without stopping to drink or to feed because it flew over the Pacific Ocean. And the weight loss of that bird, it's estimated it would have lost about 65% of its body weight doing that journey. And it arrives on the shore and it just feeds. It's no big deal. It's what it's done and what the species has done for thousands and thousands of years. I, I often say, um, that if I didn't write board books, I'd write a weight loss book, okay? And it'd be just two pages, and it would say, if you want to lose weight, migrate. Because that's, that's what these birds are doing. They're putting on all this, this weight to get them across, but they can't put on too much weight. It's a bit like an airplane. You can't actually load it too much because you use up your fuel. They have to get the balance right. They have to get enough fuel to get them on that journey. Too little, they drop into the sea too heavy they're going to get exhausted so it's, it's these birds are on a real fine knife edge so we have to respect them it, it's something that we, we we can't just sort of look at it as a bit of information but you've got to have to go good god that's incredible and these birds some of these you know particles you know they, they bred up in the, the siberian tundras we've birds from greenland birds from like finland we've birds from iceland all nesting here all of may the journey and they need to feed really good and get, get themselves in prime, prime position again for their return journey. So it's really vital that these places are 
as left undisturbed as possible. I, I think you've described it perfectly there, Eric. It's just amazing what they do. They do deserve more respect. I think they deserve the right to feed undisturbed on our beaches and, and mudflats and estuaries, all of these places. As a kid, I think what has captured me most about waders, maybe beyond all other birds, they linked me with places that I could only dream of, like High Arctic Canada, yeah. Greenland, yeah. Iceland, places that, you know, even today, it's pretty hard to get to many yeah, of those absolutely. spots. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and yet I could find them here, you know, within walking distance of my house. Yeah. And I, I just blew my mind. I think if people knew more about the journeys that these birds make, they would come to appreciate them more. And the fact that you can see them here yeah. in our capital city, in their in abundance, many, many species, it's really remarkable. And it's, it's also very important to point out that not all of the, the waders that are coming here in autumn uh, are going to stay here for the winter. Hmm. They move through. Wimbrels, for example, that are like the smaller version, the smaller cousin of the curlew. They, they are ones breed up in Iceland, but they don't spend the winter here. They spend the winter in places like Namibia and Southwest Africa. So these are stopping off feeding up as they continue on south. So it's important that we don't just have good wintering grounds. It's also important that we, good have, we have really important staging posts for the birds on their migration. That's one of the big problems we've had with wetland conservation across the globe, particularly in the Far East, mm. where an awful lot of these beautiful mud flats are an important staging post for birds on their migration from the high Arctic regions of Siberia down into the, the Asian areas. It's a big problem. It really is, and I think that it's something that needs a concerted international effort uh, to fix. Because this, it, we always say that birds don't know borders or boundaries, but waders particularly, they're passing through so many countries, and we need to protect them all along. The flyway protection is what it takes. That's why we, ornithologists and conservationists focus now on what we call the flyways. It's every stage along that bird's journey. Uh, you know, to think that some of the the, the birds, like you said, the Wimbledon, they're going to places like to Mauritania, yep. and they've come from Iceland. And we're just the, the middle part of that journey, but we're, we're still an essential part of that journey. Uh, I think sometimes as well with, with waders, um, I think that sometimes people can find them a bit bewildering, yeah. but when you're starting bird watching, yes. because they are they can be a difficult group. Particularly Once, in winter, they, they all yeah. look grey and brown, yes. Uh, yeah, I think I actually, I wish more people could actually see what they look like in summer plumage, because some of them are incredibly yeah. colourful, but they don't need to be colourful when they come down to us in the winter. Now, um, you're a field guide author, you've, you've published many books. Um, is there any particular way that you would recommend that people get to grips with waders and how do you cover that in your field guides? It's, it's, uh, it's a great one because people are put off by them. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I always try to, to say the first thing about waders is that they all feed alongside each other. So you can make direct comparisons. Hmm. You know, all you have to do is sit down as the tide comes in and you'll see all the different species of wader side by side. Yeah, you won't get that with warblers, they're flitting around, <laughs> whatever. So they're actually easy to, to, to start looking at. Four different types of waders, there's the, the, the big ones, middle ones, small ones, and then we have the plovers, which I'll deal with in a few moments. So when you're looking at waders, the thing to do is, firstly, the size of the beak. Is it big? Is it long? Is it straight? Is it curved? Does it curve upwards? curve downwards so what's the beak length what size is the bird is it a big bird like a curly one of the biggest ones or in that bracket like the godwits is it a middle one a bit like the the sort of red shanks for example it's a middle-sized bird or is it a small one one of the small little guys like like dunlin so beak size leg color hmm. what color are the legs you know if you if you start looking at the leg color red shanks have red legs green shanks have green greenish legs you know we, we have bluey legs we have black legs so we have some birds that are yellow legs, like purple sandpipers lovely yellow legs so look at those three things size of the beak size shape what's the beak like the size of the bird is it a big one a middle one little one what is the leg color and then with the plovers all the plovers have quite short stubby little beaks big eyes so again using the same sort of thing is it a big bird is it a middle one is it a small one and then again, you get into all the different plumage features. Is it golden colour? Is it brown? Is it grey? Does it have streaks on the breast? But the fundamentals are beak, size, leg colour. And if it has a little beak, it's going to be a plover. 
I think as well, once you start to recognise a few of the more common species, you then have a benchmark to compare the other ones That's to. That's the point. Um, one that I really like to start beginners with, there's one wader that you get here on the Strand that all around Ireland, yes, it's quite a common bird, and it's, it's very easy. It's I know the, what you're going to say. The yeah. oyster catcher. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's black and white. Now, it's got a, a, a pinkish red beak and, and lovely pinkish red legs as well. But the most striking thing is it's black and white, yeah. regardless of the time of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, it's one of the, the medium sized, larger, larger yeah. end of the medium size. So it's a very good size comparison. Your red going to be smaller than that. Your godwits are going to be a bit bigger than that. And then you've learned other species from it. That's the point. You, you compare half the battle of identification of birds is what the bird isn't. Yes. I've always said that people struggle to, to identify what the bird is. But the first step is, but well, you see this, it isn't a, a red shank because the, the legs are wrong. That, that This bird has sort of, you know, blackish legs or something, or has yellow legs or has blue legs. So it's not a red shank. So knowing what it isn't is a really important starter. It's not a red shank, but it's about the same size as a red shank. But hang on for a second, that beak isn't straight. That beak is slightly deep. And, and now you have a whole load of clues, but just asking yourself one or two questions. What isn't it? And you know what it isn't because you've become familiar with one or two. So if you're starting off looking at waders, go out, learn one, learn your red shank. So that'll be your, your main bird or your curlew or your small bird. That's your, your main bird to start off with. And they're the ones you use as the foundation to go to the next step, to the next step. And as you learn them, you'll begin to recognize something that stands out from the crowd. And that, of course, is brought to the ultimate thing when, you know, birders who are very experienced will look through maybe 10,000 Dunlin and find like a, a, a vagrant bird, like a white rump sandpiper, that to the average person looks exactly the same as a Dunlin, but you're just looking at slightly different things. The bill is straighter, the wings are longer, it's slightly smaller, but otherwise it looks like a Dunlin that step approach brings you to in the end. And that really boils down to practice, practice, practice. People wonder why some bird watchers are so good at finding these rare waders. It's because they put the hours in. That's what it is. It's not, it's not a fluke. It's not luck. It's, uh, it's sometimes it's luck that the bird's right there at that time when you and were there. And probably a bit of OCD as well. Uh, yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and I also get that it's not for everyone. There is a lot yeah. to be said for enjoying the spectacle of all these birds in front of you and appreciating them as a whole and watching the way that they behave without becoming too obsessed or, or bogged down in trying to identify them. Everyone enjoys them in different ways. I think the most important thing is to realise that whatever they are, they are amazing. And, and this is the, the, the joy, the whole joy of being interested in the natural world, yeah. um, is that it's out there. We can, we can enjoy it. It's just, it's there at our fingertips. If we just open, open our eyes to it, open our ears to it, and everybody can take what they want from it. You know, I'm, I'm interested in waders and I'll go through them. I'll spend hours, you know, checking through all. But if somebody just wants to sit here and watch them wheeling as they go to roost, that is, it's, it's a, an emotional experience. I, I keep talking about how, you know, nature is an emotional attachment that we all have. It's ingrained in us. You know, to watch golden plover, you know, dance in the sky and, and they, they flick over and suddenly they disappear and then they flick back and that lovely golden, it's, it, it's, a, it's a, a phenomenal thing that we have on our doorsteps. And, you know, the water is now almost up up lapping against us now it's a, it's, a, it's so fast how how quickly this tide rises uh, it's it's a, a, a special place it's a really really special place and and again as i said because it's so close to the the city so the city centre's right there yeah, you can I see it yeah, and, yeah. and these birds are around here and it's of international importance for many of these species uh, there's one bird in particular that I want to mention you mentioned it already but I think it, it deserves mm. us to talk about it a bit that's possibly my favourite wader of all and that's the curlew yes um, I remember as a child watching curlews here and in the marsh just beside us as well in Bouderstown the curlew is our, our largest regular curling wader um, they're mostly brown they don't change much between summer and winter they look pretty much the same year round they have that very very long down curved beak which makes them very distinctive and they have that distinctive that's sort of beautiful call yeah that's it no absolutely yeah. and i remember watching them here in abundance when they were yeah. when i was a kid um i remember last year i was here with a film crew from rt who wanted to film curlew for, for a segment that they were doing for a program and as it often is you know yourself eric with film crews they have very yeah. limited time yeah and they wanted to get a curlew i come down here to scout it out i found one and it took me about half an hour to find wow. it and it is worry and i think it's something that a lot of even quite serious bird watchers in Ireland don't fully appreciate the yep. plight of the curlew. With 
these waders like the curlew and the red shank and the snipe and other birds yes. like that, we do have breeding with lapwing. We have breeding yeah. populations of these in Ireland too that are on the absolute brink. The populations are collapsing. Yeah. Um, there are fewer curlews in Ireland now than and there woodcock are woodcock as well. Woodcock, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Golden species, plover golden in the uplands and all yeah. these all these yeah. birds. But the curlew particularly, the Irish population is in big trouble, but not just that. The entire population across Europe yeah. and Asia is in trouble. We're seeing declines. Uh, and I we're facing the prospect that bird could actually go extinct in our yep. lifetimes. This is just horrible. And and curlews have that habit. Yes. You know, the Eskimo curlew was one of the most populous uh, species in North America, and now it's extinct. Uh, I think the last one possibly seen was in, in the late 1950s. That's right, and the, then you have the, the slender bill curlew. curlew. And that's passed, a very no. recent... Have you seen slender bill I have curlew? not, have you? No, no I no, haven't. No, but you know, several of my friends have. Yeah. So like, they've actually seen a species that is now extinct, yeah. which, which is really worrying. And the problem is that you, you talk about curlews and you talk about how endangered they are, and then people go out to Bull Island and they see 200 curlews. They say, what are these guys talking about? But these are birds that have you know, journeyed from northern countries. But our breeding population, what is it, what's, what's it estimated now is in pairs? So it's, it, it's around the 150 kind of mark. That's like, that's, that's insane. That's down from 10,000 in the 1980s. Yeah, like, and that's, that's like in our lifetime, yeah. you know, and, you know, they were common. I, I, I often think of, you know, the famous Harpad, you know, and <laughs> Sally O'Brien and the way she might look at you and, you know, you could, you could boil an egg on the stones here if you had a, you know, an egg. But. He also refers to, you know, the, the, the call of the curlew as parts of things that he misses from home. Yeah. And I often think of the generations of Irish young people leaving Ireland now who don't carry a little bit of the natural world with them, who don't have the call of the curlew as part of their upbringing. Yeah. or the call of the corncrake that's part of their upbringing that they just associate with home. Um, they don't have that anymore. And, you know, that's why that, that ad was, was, like, so poignant because it was part of him missing home was, you know, the call of the curlew. Chances are, if he's in the Middle East now, he, he wouldn't have that memory because there's certainly no curlews nesting near where he was when he was growing up. Yeah, it, it, it really is very, very stark. And so it brings it into, I suppose, real perspective here that you can actually still see this bird here yeah. at Sandyman Strand and Booristown Marsh and at Bull Island and many other locations around the Irish coasts particularly um, and in some of our boglands still yeah. where they exist. But please, anyone listening to this, go out, find a curlew, look at it, tell, tell your kids and your grandkids about it. It's a remarkable thing. Because the chances are that your grandkids may not get to see, you know, a, a curlew in the future. It's... Uh, it's, it's a very worrying situation. Guys, I have to say, it's wonderful listening to you. I can hear the water lapping. It must be getting closer and closer to it you. It is. But the one thing you haven't touched on yet, I know you're holding it to the end, they always keep the best <laughs> to last, is feeding at night. Does it make any difference to them? Well, I, I think that where we are, although the sun has set, it's actually not all that dark. I mean, Eric, you and I can see each yeah. other quite yeah. clearly here yeah. now. We can see the water around us because the glow from the city is quite strong. Uh, very often on, on nights when there's a full moon, um, it makes it easier for them. Absolutely. But yeah. They have remarkable eyesight, but also they seem to have a mental map of the location where they are. And as you said earlier, most of what they do is actually find it by feeling. They can't even see their food. Yeah. It's below the no, surface. Below they don't the really need, they to don't see. need to see. Yeah. 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 So they're, they're using, you know, it's, it's a bit like uh, using touch to find your way around and they know exactly where they are where they're going and many of these birds have come back here year after year after year they know this place this is their winter home it's a place that they are familiar with and that's why i often look at, at some of these wetlands that are suddenly drained or paved over you know one year the, the birds are feeding there and they come back then and it's gone yeah completely pulling the rug yeah. out from underneath them they're relying what, on that what do they do where do they go how do they feed these wetlands that we have are so important for so many species right around the world. Dublin Bay is, forget about the smell of the seaweed, you know, it clears your lungs, it's great. This, this, is, this is a special place, you know, everybody should get here. And like the other thing as well, this is a biosphere habitat, this is like internationally known, this should be a tourist attraction. Yeah. You know, this, these are the kind of mad things that, that get to me, I've done a lot of guiding. And, you bring a group of Americans out to the Bull Island in winter and they are blown away. They, they just can't comprehend that there, there isn't hides, there isn't, you know, walkways, there isn't... They just can't get their head around this. You know, people running, you know, their dogs on, on Sandy Mount Strand, it wouldn't be allowed in other parts of, of the world because this would be treasured as something 
really, really valuable. But Derek, back to how they actually feed, mm-hmm. we, we touched on it earlier, but it, it differs from species to species. But it really comes down to those long legs and those long beaks, or the varying lengths of those. You have some of the birds, like a, a bird called the Dunlin, it's the, it's the archetypical small little brownish grey wader, they're tiny little things. Uh, you have another bird then, the Sanderling, which is like, I was thinking of looking, looking like ghost Dunlins. They're, they're, they're the same size and shape, roughly very, very, very pale. And another one, the Knot, which is slightly bigger, it's about K-N-O-T. Uh, and they will often be at the very edge of the water. And you see them running away from the waves like little clockwork toys. Yes. Uh, and then they're running back in. What they're doing is they're trying to get the little invertebrates that are washed up with that wave when it broke. And they go in and they can probe down just a little bit below the surface. They can get those things. Then you have the birds like the curlew that you mentioned, Eric, with the really long down curved beaks. And, and uh, they have very uh, sensitive tips, but also very flexible tips. Yes, they can the open point, them. Yeah. People uh, think that a beak is, is like rock, rock hard like your nails, but it's actually very flexible, very sensitive. Um, yeah. and, and how they're... they're feeding I often would say to classes I was running is that how they're able to do that if I put three different balls into a big barrel of mud mm-hmm. one is a golf ball one is a tennis ball one's a rubber ball and you can't see you know what they are but you put your hand in you'll be able to identify the tennis ball from the rubber ball from the, the golf mm-hmm. ball but we have very sensitive touch waders have the exact same level of sensitivity they're able to go in they're able to distinguish a lugworm from you know, a piece of stick. They, they know exactly what they're going So at. day or night doesn't matter to them when they're feeding because they can't see the food anyway. Exactly, Derek, exactly. They're using touch rather than eyesight. The majority of these waders. Plovers, on the other hand, they are using their eyes to find stuff just below and on the surface. So they are not as successful at night time as the other waders are. They, they're much more visual, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, then you have one way I think that's worth mentioning because of its bizarre feeding action. There's about three species of this. It's a bird called phalaropes. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And actually, a bird, the grey phalarope, there's a bit of an influx this autumn and they've yeah. actually been here on Sandy Mount Strand in, in recent weeks. And uh, in, in the, the non-breeding season when we see them, they're very sort of pale grey birds. They're a bit to me like a, like a, a tiny, tiny gull almost. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and they, they can, they have long legs, they can, they can wade like others, but they also, unlike most waders, they swim but the way that they feed it's remarkable they start spinning in the water to create a vortex that brings little tiny food items up to the surface and then they use their very long needle-like bills to use they use capillary action to bring that food up into their beaks so actually putting the water their beak in the water opening the bill slightly the surface tension is enough to bring the food up into their beaks but surface tension only works if there's no detergent or other pollution in the water okay. so any kind of pollution and they're done for uh, and it's you know they're, they're so special I think that's the way that it is for all waders, even if they all look with their feeding method, look similar. They all have their own subtly different yes. niche that sets them apart from all the others. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And yeah, um, phalaropes, they're, they're, we have uh, one species. There's only three species of phalarope in the world. The Wilson's phalarope, which is a North American one. The um, grey phalarope, which is found up in the, the high Arctic regions, even up into places like you know Greenland and areas like that. And of course, redneck phalarope, which are the most delicate and beautiful of them all, as their name suggests, they have a red neck. But we have them breeding mm. in a Birdwatch Island Reserve in County Mayo. That's right, on the Mullet Peninsula. And that's another big success story. And hats off to my colleague Dave Sotheby for making that possible. Uh, because that's a species that went extinct in Ireland. And through careful habitat management, there's also benefited other species like yes, corn crakes. Absolutely. Uh, a wonderful yeah. insect called the great yellow bumblebee, which is found in the same the same sort of habitat. Uh, that species has been brought back. It's it wasn't reintroduced or anything, it managed managed to recreate that and, and it came back it came back of its own accord. So there is hope. If you build it, they will come. That's the point. And and the interesting thing about the, the Bell Mullet um, the Mullet Peninsula phalaropes is that they're the most southern nesting redneck phalaropes in the world. Yes. Am I right? That's yeah. correct. So, like, why, why? They've always been on, on the, the mullet, but just in that one little area, nowhere else. They weren't nesting anywhere else in Ireland. Like, is that a throwback to the Ice Age, maybe? Mm. Is it like that these birds, this was maybe the first areas in Ireland to, to be clear of ice, so the birds would be moving north and they started nesting here? And they're sort of sight fateful to that like, like why why that one little marsh on the Muller Peninsula and nowhere else like why are they choosing this year after year and I was there this year and there was you know I think there was four or five boards and the other interesting thing of course about phalaropes is that the females are the ones that are colourful the males are dull the females have no hand act or part in raising the young the males are the ones that do the jobs. So she comes in, she mates, lays her eggs, 
the males look, look after, incubate those eggs, protect those eggs, raise those chicks, look after the chicks, all by himself. Yeah. Phenomenal birds. But, but why the mullet peninsula? It really is interesting. I don't know if anyone can fully answer that. I do think you're right. I think it's some sort of ancestral memory. And it's thought that there's a link between that population and some of the populations in some of the Scottish islands. And it seems there's a very strong possibility, or probability even, that those phalaropes, they don't winter, sorry, in the same locations as the other European breeding ones. Okay. They're thought possibly to winter in the Pacific Ocean. I heard that. So it might that's be an extension mad. of the North American population that has managed to colonise the, these like, fringes of Europe. That's, that's isn't insane, mad, yeah. isn't it? Like, yeah. But like, is it known how these phalaropes get to the Pacific Ocean? Do they like go up over the Arctic? Do they fly across land? What? How did they get there? I don't think anyone's quite sure. I think it probably makes more sense they would go up around near the pole yeah. and that way it's a shorter journey but it's obviously a harsh journey. Yes. Uh, but uh, they just do what millions of years of evolution have, have led them to do. Um, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? So yeah, so that is probably a throwback to, to an American, North American sort of uh, population. Uh, basically exploring Western Europe and colonising Western Europe. Well, the, the other European or other boards are more uh, in, in the northern areas of, of northern Europe. That's, that's fascinating. I, um, I, I was interested to find out why phalaropes are called phalaropes, because uh, it's not a very common yes. word, let's face it. So, I, so there's so many things that are amazing about them. So they do the spinning in the water to make a vortex. Yeah. The food come up, they use capillary action to feed. As you said, the females are the dominant, more colourfully plumaged, more pugnacious ones. Uh, they also have, um, they don't have um, webbed toes, they have lobed feet, so they're yeah. the really like, amazing adaptation for swimming. So many amazing things about them. Uh, it turns out that phalarope comes from Old Greek, meaning having a white spot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Okay, and that that actually that that might make sense because they do have this little spot above their eye as yeah, plumage. That's where yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. So someone saw that, and that's what struck them most about the bird. So. <laughs> <laughs> they are obviously looking at a specimen. They certainly weren't looking at the bird for eating or behaving or anything like that. But yeah. you know, I I saw um, I saw a grey phalarope, and the, the the name grey phalarope is very misleading because in in. In winter and young birds, they are grey, but in summer plumage, they're they're full red, almost, you know, luminous. And that in North America, they're called red phalaropes as opposed to grey phalaropes. Uh, amazing, and the fact that you can actually see those species, all three uh, have occurred in Ireland, um, and the, the, as you said, the redneck breeds, the red slash grey, um, turns up here annually in small numbers, and occasionally we get one of these Wilson's phalaropes from North America. Beautiful. Um, that's why it always pays to watch out for the waders. And the other last thing I will say about phalaropes, why I love them so much, is that most of them have never encountered human beings before. Oh, yes. They show no fear. Yeah. I was watching and uh, photographing a, a, a grey phalarope in Wexford uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the, uh, the the bird was feeding within a couple of foot from me. It was just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I think that you know whether they're colourful or not, or whether they're common or rare, whether they're exotic or they came from down the road. There's just something amazing about waders. I, I think because in many ways they, 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 they're they different very different type of birds to the ones yes. we see in our gardens. Yeah. You have to make a bit of an effort to go see them, but when you do you're rewarded. Yeah, absolutely. And like being a dub, uh, I was born and bred in the north side. The Bull Island was the first place I started bird watching. You know, really going out looking. And uh, oh, I fell in love with, with all of these birds in winter. I really did. And I'm still in love with them now today. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And my plea to anybody who happens to be tomorrow morning, having listened to this, if you're, if you're on the dart, if you're commuting into Dublin and you're coming along the coast and you're going past Sandy Mount Strand, you're going past uh, Buddhist Town Marsh, Put down the smartphone, put down yeah. the newspaper just for a couple of minutes, look out the window and see what is there. It's absolutely incredible. And then do that the next morning and then the next morning. And before you know it, you'll start to see this changing through the seasons and how many remarkable birds come in. And of course, it's not all being Dublin centric about that. There's so many places. No, that that's the point. Yeah, that. absolutely. We just happen to be in Dublin Bay this beautiful evening. But it's all over the country, all along the coasts, all along the lakes, everywhere. There's like snipe in the bogs. There's curlews there in wintertime. Oh, treasure what we have. Take in that smell and enjoy it. <laughs> well, I think we timed it just right, Eric, because the, the, the water's yes, going to be lapping around our yes, feet shortly. Not, it's coming yeah, fast. Well, I, think, I think it's time to, to wrap it up here. Yeah, the, wait, the waders will be, will be leaving this area now. Yeah. They'll maybe be heading off to the, to, to the piers in Dunleary yeah. to roost the walls. They might be heading into the marsh. They might be heading to Bull Island. Um, but uh, I think, you know, it paid off for us. We did well tonight. I think. And it was <laughs> a fantastic evening, Noel. Really, really Thank enjoyed uh, standing at a beautiful place, smelling that seaweed, chatting to you. Oh, pleasure. Thank you very much. And, and I suppose with that, Derek, it's back over to you.
Thank you very much indeed, Niall Hatch, and to Eric Dempsey. And can I just say what a pleasure it was to sit in the studio listening to two people who care passionately about nature just shooting the breeze. So thank you very much indeed, guys. That's all we have time for tonight. Thanks to everybody who contributed to Nature Nights over the last seven nights. And we will do it again next year, no doubt. Next Monday, you get a second chance to hear our documentary about the reintroduction of the Osprey to Ireland. Visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Until next time, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. (laughs) 